Drama on One. Sundays at 8 pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. Learn to type. Learn to drive. Have fun. Write postcards. Letters take too long and you won't do it. A postcard takes two minutes. Be punctual. Don't worry about what other people are thinking. They are not thinking about you. Write quickly. Taking longer doesn't usually make it better. Get up early. See the world. Call everybody by their first name from doctors to presidents. Have parties. Don't agonise. Don't regret. Don't fuss. Never brood. Move on. Don't wait for permission to be happy. Don't wait for permission to do anything. Make your own life. My mission this week is to be more Maeve. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. You're listening to RTE Radio 1. Tonight we begin our September season of four plays written by Maeve Binchy. First up and first broadcast in 2005 as part of Drama on One's Seven Ages of Man series, Infancy tells the story of Baby Finton, an infant savant who has, shall we say, early life communication issues. Starring Michael Murphy, Infancy is introduced now by Maeve Binchy. When I was told about this idea of the seven ages of man, I was beginning to wonder which one I'd do myself. I thought maybe the older uh, age group, since that's the one I find myself in presently. And I was thinking about that, or maybe I would do this sort of schoolboy because I love uh, any kind of things about school children. But in fact, I wasn't given a choice. I was told infancy. That's what you're doing, Maeve, infancy. So um, I sat down to think about it. I, I often think the best thing is not to think too long and too hard about things. It only confuses your mind. And what was the first instinct that came to my mind was the fact that very often I think that those little babies with wise eyes and little wrinkled faces in prams and in cradles, that they've got much more intelligence than we think. And what are we always saying to them? We're saying goo and ga and isn't it a lovely baby waby and all that. And in fact they might be twice as bright as we are and think that we're desperate idiots making faces at them and jabbering our lips. So I decided to write about a baby who understood everything and uh, who would not only uh, be kind of vaguely understanding, but understood more than the people who were talking to him. And I thought to myself afterwards, well, that might be true, you know. We might all be very wise when we're born and we just get stupider as we get older. And uh, now it's done and now it's a, it's a play and I've, I've loved listening to it and I hope you'll enjoy it too. I can understand them perfectly. It's astounding that they can't understand me. Poor little Finton. I think he wants his bottle, they say. But I'm only trying to tell them that the sun is in my eyes. He must want a fresh He must want a fresh nappy. Finton needs a nappy wappy, they say. When I'm telling them that I have an ache in my neck and that I need a pillow. It's going to get better, apparently. They keep mentioning things like when I'm able to talk, so it seems that one day they will understand me. Wait until Finton knows words and sentences and everything, they say. Wait? But sure I know words and sentences, it's just they don't understand them. I know everything that's going on in their lives, while they actually know nothing about mine. I know that my mother is called Francesca, or Cheska to her friends. She is a lawyer and she works very hard in the office and at home, and she looks terrific because she's always getting new clothes. I have a brother and a sister who are very old and can't understand me either when I talk. They think I'm crying. Shut up, grizzling, Finton, they say. This annoys me. I'm not grizzling. I'm talking. My brother is called Michael and he's at university studying English. You'd think he'd know how to speak it by now, but I don't think he works too hard. My sister is called Barbara 
and she's in her last year at school. She wants to go round the world for a year when she gets her leaving certificate, but my parents will have none of it. We have a very nice dog, called Satellite, who lost one of his paws in some mystery accident, and everyone in the house blames everyone else about it. Satellite can't talk properly. Well, at least, I can't understand him, and nobody else can either. I hear them saying... Satellite wants a walk when he barks, or Satellite wants his dinner. Maybe the dog is just saying, Hello, that is a good day. And he's like me, stuck in a world where nobody seems to hear anything. My father is called Sean. He works in a bank and has a long, sad face. He and my mother don't get on well. The love has gone out of their marriage. They had me as an afterthought, as a way to cement their marriage. They thought that when I came along they would get back all those early feelings from the time when they did love each other. I think they were wrong. Those feelings don't come back just because they had a cementing baby in the house. It takes more than that, I'd say. Much more. For one thing, they're too old to have had me. It was different when they had Michael and Barbara. They were younger then and had much more energy. You need energy with infants, apparently, because we wake up at the wrong times for grown-ups and young grown-ups can cope with this. Older, more tired grown-ups who don't love each other properly aren't able for it and to get resentful and they're so tired all the time. Things aren't going well in my father's bank and he's very anxious and takes all kinds of soothing medicine to stop his insides from being on fire. And my mother is fed up because she's meant to be doing her law work at home and it's not really working for her and she's very ratty about young, unimportant people who are getting places just because they're able to be in the office, which she isn't. And it's often very dull here with everyone waiting for me to say my first word, as if I hadn't said a million words that nobody has copped on to yet. And I wish I could tell them that none of it matters very much, really. What will happen will happen. Soon I'll be able to say something that their poor brains will understand, and then they'll all say how clever I am. Soon my father's bank will either get back on course or be exposed as corrupt, and my father will either escape or be sacked. There's not one thing he can do about it by worrying. And these low-grade, unimportant people in my mother's office, she should make them into friends, not enemies. She'll be back there in four years when I'm at play school. She needs allies, not rivals. But when I try to tell her this, she says, Poor little, Poor little Finton, have we windies. Oh, let's get rid of the windies, Finton, and juggles me about when I just want to be left alone. And my brother Michael should put his mind to his studies because from what I can see about grown-ups, their brains go softer as they grow older and it's only when they're reasonably young that they have any chance at all of learning anything and letting it sink in. And Barbara is mad to want to go off round the world with her dizzy friends. They're all bird brains and something terrible would happen to them by day three. And if Satellite wants more sympathy and attention as he seems to, Then all he should do is lift his broken paw and they'll all turn into custard hearts. So, I lie here thinking about them all. This family I'm part of because I don't really know a lot of other people since I can't get out to meet them and not many of them come in here to meet me. Often I I get a bit bored and wish the day would soon come when they would understand me and I could tell them what things look like from down here in the cradle or the pram or wherever. Meanwhile, I just try to make sense of their lives. When I see you smile It feels like I'm falling It's not for anybody else to know The way your face could light The bitter dark of every street In every town I'll ever 
Francesca holds me a lot to her in a very suffocating way. I'm so sorry, Fintan, she says over and over like I hadn't got it the first time. She's sorry about something. She never says what. But she's desperately sorry that it all didn't work. What didn't work? So much doesn't work around this place, she could be talking about anything. I thought for a while it was the heating. Sometimes it's like an oven. Then they open the windows to let the fresh air in and it's like a fridge. Or maybe it's the atmosphere. Everybody's very tense all the time. But why be sorry about that? Why not just change it? It's beyond me. So I try to smile, because that always pleases them. Then Cheska says to me, Oh, poor little Finton, I think you're smiling, but it's only the wind, isn't it? They have a total obsession with my having wind, which is very unfair. I mean, they burp and fart away, and nobody takes them up and shakes them and beats the back off them like they do with me. And nobody says, it's just wind, when they laugh or smile. Then... When Sean comes home from the bank late, he sometimes comes in to see me and he sits beside the cot. Oh, Jesus, Jesus Finton, another killer of a day, he'll say. And I try to look sympathetic, but all he sees is wind or a nappy pin stuck into me or something. Don't, Don't ever join the, the bank, bank, Finton. And if you have, and if you have to... Then do be be a a yes man and a no man and don't don't take any risks, risks. he'd advise me. Some evenings, after I had heard him and Cheska shouting at each other, he would give me further fatherly advice. Now listen here, Finton, if you remember nothing else, remember this. Don't ever marry. And if you have to marry, don't marry a career woman with notions. It is quite simply the worst option that exists. Michael doesn't talk to me much. He's too busy. He has a lot to do at college and very little of it connected with studying, I gather. But sometimes he babysits, as he calls it, so that Cheska and Sean can go out and fight in a restaurant instead of fighting at home. When he's doing this babysitting, he always asks his friends to come into my room and they smoke pot. The baby is so smelly anyway they'll never detect it in his room. Michael explains so that they all sit around and smoke and talk rubbish and and none of them take any notice of me at all except to say how awful I am and how gross it was of Michael's parents to have me when they were so old. Barbara is a bit better. Not much, but a bit. She brings her friends in to look at me and sometimes they wonder why anyone would bother having a child. One of their schoolmates is expecting a child and she is getting a lot of attention which Barbara and her friends don't like. But then they come and they look at me and that seems to cheer them up. Imagine having to look after something like this all day and all night, Barbara says. And then they all sigh and shake their heads at the horror of it. Satellite isn't much company, but we have a fellow feeling for each other. He sleeps by the window in my room. And since he doesn't have fleas or anything, they leave him there. But it causes resentment. Of course he doesn't want to sleep with the big children. They nearly murdered him, my father Sean says. They didn't nearly murder him. They let go his lead when you were shouting so much you frightened them, Cheska says. I was shouting because you were picking poisonous mushrooms, Sean says. My brother and sister just sigh. It sounds like some picnic. I'm glad I wasn't around for it. Sometimes, Cheska brings me to the doctor. That's what she says at home. I'm taking Finton for a check-up today. But it's odd, because we don't go near Dr Murphy's surgery. We go to an apartment block. And then she leaves me with the porter there while she goes upstairs. I suppose Dr Murphy must have a flat there and she must go up and talk to him about me. The porter is a very nice man. His name is Deco. And he has red hair, he has three children of his own, and he tells me he wouldn't give one of them back. This alarms me a little, because you see, I didn't know you could give us back. Deco was great company, 
He tells me things and he introduces me to other people who come in and out of the building. This is Finton, he would say. Finton's mother is calling on a friend upstairs, if you know what I mean. People did know what he meant and would shake their heads and say... And I would try to explain and tell them that she was visiting Dr Murphy to ask him about me and my health. But of course none of them ever understood. If it came out as a cry to them, they got upset and said, Poor little thing. And if it came out as a gurgle, they got even more upset still and said, Poor innocent little thing. It was infuriating. And then Cheska, my mother told me that she was going to go totally screaming mad if she didn't go back to the office for at least one day a week. She had to keep her hand in, she said, and because she made all her phone calls in front of me, I realised that she was only going to the office for one half day a week, and the rest of the day she was spending with someone called Darling. And it wasn't my father, Sean. I didn't understand everything, but I did know that this was odd. You were only meant to have one, darling. I knew that. So, on the day that my mother Cheska was out at her office and visiting darling, I had a lady come to mind me. She was called Ruby, and she worked part-time in my father Sean's bank. She was a funny shape, and she had very pointed bosoms. They looked like spinning tops that children played with sometimes, Michael, my brother, and his friends used to call her Ruby Booby, which was a reference to her bosoms. My sister Barbara and her friends didn't like her. They said she was very obvious. The one thing you should never be was obvious, they told each other. Men didn't go for obvious. They were attracted enough to look, sure they were, but they ended up laughing at these kinds of women. Obvious was foolish. My father, Sean, didn't laugh at Ruby, though. When he came back from the bank, he would go with Ruby for a lie-down in his bedroom, and then he would sit and hold her hand in my room. You could see the garden from my room, and when my mother Cheska's car lights came in, my father would go downstairs, and Ruby would stay with me. Poor little Finton. Poor little Finton, Ruby often whispered to me. Have you haven't an idea of what's going on. As soon as you're old enough, your daddy is coming to live with me, and you can come and visit on Saturdays too. You'll, you'll like that, Fintan, and in time, I'll have little brothers and sisters for you to play with. It was bewildering. That's the only thing you could say about it. My brother Michael has a girlfriend now, and he was telling her how he was never going to get married because marriage simply didn't work. The girl seemed disappointed with this news. She said that her parents were very happy altogether. They must be the only couple left in Ireland who are then, Michael said, very grumpily. I also hear Barbara saying to her friends that her mother must have a fancy man. I mean, she gets her legs waxed and she has gorgeous new underwear at the back of her drawer. Barbara's friends nodded. This was proof, all right. Would she run off with him? One of them asked in excitement. She probably would, Barbara said, if it wasn't for this. She must have indicated me in the cot because they all looked at me with sour, resentful faces. I was the only reason that Cheska couldn't go off and have a good time, apparently. Without me, it could all have been sorted. I was very quiet after that. Too quiet. God, Barbara, is Finton dead? One of them asked. They examined me and found that I wasn't. Just as well, Barbara said, or you can be sure we'd have been blamed. Then, on the very same day as I realised I was standing in the way of people's happiness, Ruby Booby said something almost precisely similar to Sean, my father. How long will it take him to grow up, Sean? Tell me, how long must we wait? We don't have to wait until he's really grown up, my darling. Only grown up enough to know that I haven't gone away from him and that I'll always be there for him. And what age will that be? Ruby went on. Oh, darling, we don't know. It will depend on how he grows up, matures, you know. Like, when he's seven, six, what? I don't know, darling. 
My father stroked Ruby's pointy bosom and then he tickled me under the chin. Oh, oh Fintan, you funny little fellow. Funny little fellow. If you, you only knew how many problems you caused. Problems you caused. Ruby looked very put out. Her mouth got all droopy and so my father had to kiss it better. I stayed still so as not to annoy them but not so still that they might think I was dead. It was all a bad situation and totally, for some reason, entirely my fault. But how could I sort it out? How could I tell them? They can't even understand one word I say. So how can I explain that I'd be perfectly happy for them all to go off now rather than waiting for the day to come when they understand what I say? I'm easy with them arranging to divide me between the two of them going from one to the other. It seems by far the best way when you think of it. I'd love them to know what I'm saying. Michael doesn't care what they do. And Barbara is not going to be pleased by anything they do or don't do. And as long as someone gives Satellite his dinner and takes him for a walk, he doesn't care. And I, who am the nicest of them all, want them to be happy. And I'll just go wherever I'm put. Then, I don't have to lie here, day after day, hearing that it's all my fault. It will have to be done by screams. That's all they can hear. What I must do is work out when to scream to the best advantage. I practised a good scream on the way to Dr Murphy's second surgery with Cheska, my mother. She looked at me very alarmed. Oh God, Fintan, don't go and get sick on me now, of all times, she begged. Then I might really really have to go to the doctor. I couldn't understand it at all. Weren't we on the way to the doctor? Why else did we come to this place? I wished I could get Deco to understand the setup. He was so nice and friendly, but as deaf and confused as the rest of them. It was really so frustrating. One of his friends came in, and they were talking. I knew they were talking about me because of the glances at the pram, so I closed my eyes, strained to listen. The mother is upstairs in number 37, as usual, with her fancy man. Poor little devil here has to wait until the fun's over. Imagine... She wasn't talking about me to Dr Murphy at all. It was so unfair of her. I gave a great series of loud screams, huge screams, and poor Deco panicked and he telephoned number 37. He said he was very sorry to disturb them but that Finton had taken some kind of a seizure and my mother appeared eventually very flustered with a totally strange man and I thought I'd better keep up the screams so that Deco wouldn't be blamed for disturbing them unnecessarily. The totally strange man seemed friendly. I could live with him if that's what the future held. His poor little face is very red, Cheska. We'd better take him to the doctor, he said. I didn't intend you to meet him yet, Douglas. Not till... Not till he was older, my mother said. So, my new stepfather was to be called Douglas. I stretched out my hand to him and I held his finger tightly. He seemed delighted. Ah, he's a lovely lovely little lad. lad. Look, Look, he's bonding with me. He's bonding with me. Douglas was beaming at me like an idiot. Yes, well, he's not old enough to bond, my mother said. And his father hasn't a clue. If only he would step out of line. Then we'd be right as rain. So I had to try and tell them about my father's interest in Ruby Booby and her pointed bosoms and how she too was counting the years until I was old enough. And how actually... I am old enough already, if they could only understand it. But how could I do it? The next time that my mother had gone out to work, which I now knew meant spending half the day with Douglas, Ruby was minding me, and then she and my father went for their lie-down. His mobile was beside me, and I knew that he pressed just a number one to get my mother, so I pressed it. When she answered, Hello? I screamed and screamed. Hello? My father didn't hear me because he and Ruby had the door closed when they were lying down, you see. So my mother came home and they didn't hear her car 
and I had stopped screaming by then, and my mother Cheska had brought Douglas with her to give her courage in case someone was murdering me or something, and she found my father, Sean, having a lie-down with Ruby, in what Cheska kept calling, my bed. And it all got very excited, and there was a lot of shouting and people asking, who was Douglas, and what did Ruby think she was doing in Cheska's bed, and everyone said they would have to talk it all through, which they did. And Michael and Barbara, they pretended to be very upset, but of course they weren't at all. They were putting it on so that everyone would give them presents. And I was going to live with Douglas and my mother in the block of flats where Douglas lived. Which was just fine with me, because I really liked Deco downstairs. But I was sick of lying in me pram in the lobby. And they couldn't have a dog there. So Satellite was going to live with Ruby and my father in her place. And they would sell the house, and everything was fine. And the only thing they never understood was how my mother knew to come home. And when she said that she had got a telephone call with a baby screaming on it, they knew this was madness. It had to be. I wasn't screaming when they came home. And anyway, how could an infant use a cell phone? That was Infancy by Maeve Binchy. Michael Murphy played Finton. Catherine Brennan was Francesca and Daniel Reardon played Sean. Sound supervision was by Mark McGrath and Infancy by Maeve Binchy was produced by Liam O'Brien. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Learn to type. Learn to drive. Have fun. Write postcards. Letters take too long and you won't do it. A postcard takes two minutes. Be punctual. Don't worry about what other people are thinking. They are not thinking about you. Write quickly. Taking longer doesn't usually make it better. Get up early. See the world. Call everybody by their first name from doctors to presidents. Have parties. Don't agonise. Don't regret. Don't fuss. Never brood. Move on. Don't wait for permission to be happy. Don't wait for permission to do anything. Make your own life. My mission this week is to be more Maeve. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. In September 2002, Maeve decided to channel her inner Sinatra and after two years of retirement, she re-emerged to a packed audience at the National Concert Hall. In a landmark public interview, which Miles Dungan described as the easiest five bob he ever earned, Maeve held an enthralled audience in the palm of her hand and did what she did best. She told stories, wonderful stories, one after another. Tonight, we present excerpts from that interview and we're delighted to tell you that the full interview featuring previously unbroadcast material, including Maeve reading from her book Quentin's and taking questions from the audience, is available on the Drama on One website. So here's Miles introducing that interview, first broadcast on Rattlebag in September 2002. In the meantime, I think it's time to warm up that veal casserole. Welcome to our Rattlebag public interview. Tonight, we are going to hear about someone who retired at the height of their fame, a move much regretted by a host of avid fans and then thought better of that decision and made a tremendous comeback to further rapturous acclaim and glory. But enough about DJ Carey. (laughs) We've got a full house this evening in the National Concert Hall for a very special guest. She won't mind, I think, being called a household name, but would probably quibble at being described as a national treasure for fear that the National Museum would insist on housing her in Collins Barracks for the rest of her life. Her name is associated with generosity of spirit, great good humour and warm-hearted insight. And her novels aren't bad either. Two years ago, like that famous Kilkenny hurler, she announced that she'd had enough. And the people of Clare are today mourning DJ's change of heart. Nobody regrets, though, that our guest tonight did change her mind and nobody regrets the publication of her new novel, Quentin's. Would you please welcome Maeve Binchy. 
Now, um, we're in this elegant hall, and this, I think, probably has other associations for you as it does for me before it became the elegant, well, it was always an elegant hall, but before it became the hall, the national concert hall that it is. Uh, this is where you did your university exams. Does it, does it bring memories of UCD flooding back, happy memories? Indeed. I went, came to UCD in 1956 um, on a wet October day, and I was just so excited by it because we'd been to a convent school and at conf I had no elder brothers who might have introduced me to the glorious world of men about which we talked non-stop at school from the age of 13 until 17 we talked about men non-stop and we were so excited about them and what we would do when we met them and mainly I think I talked for two years about the wedding night and what you... <laughs> What you do on the wedding night, and would you go to the bathroom first, or would he go to the bathroom? Because the bathroom would always be down a corridor, because we never understood. En suite hadn't come to Ireland at that stage. And would you go to the bathroom first, and would you be lying on the bed waiting for him when he came back, or would would that be too eager, or? Forward. Or forward, or would you pretend to be asleep, or would that be too backward? So, I mean, I promise you, this is what we talked about non-stop. And then we suddenly got out into the world where men were, which was 1956 UCD. And they were very different than what we thought, because they weren't as full of this wonderful lust that the, the nuns had taught us. I was taught by a wonderful group of nuns who were the Holy Child Convent nuns in Kalini. They were a bit posher than, uh, than us, for a starter, and they were, a lot of them were English, and they had come over to Ireland. I think they regarded it in those days as part of their missionary duty, you know, to come to, <laughs> but, but they were marvellous women, and they, not one of them ever said a word to me as I wrote dreadful, cliché, caricature nuns into my books and stories. I never had a word of attack from any of them. They were very, very nice, but they did fire us with the notion that there was lust. And one of them must have told me, because I couldn't have made it up myself, that the way God had arranged things was for the propagation of the species. That the propagation of the species wouldn't happen, because we were all dead lazy, we wouldn't bother propagating ourselves, <laughs> unless there was some mild pleasure attached to it. So some mild pleasure was attached to propagating ourselves. And he put into men an insatiable lust. And he put into women something called holy purity, which was to <laughs> beat them back. So I came into these halls in UCD prepared, because I was very, very religious. I was prepared to beat back all this lust. And I was a bit disappointed there wasn't more of it, you know, getting ready to, to, to beat it back. But I had a wonderful time. I was nervous that day. I can remember, I think every time I come up Earlsford Terrace, I think of that day of getting out. It's so strange, getting out at the station that we then called Westland Row, which is now Pierce Station, and coming into what we then called UCD, which is now the National Concert Hall. And everything has changed so much. But I can, that feeling of that day is still the same. Will I be all right? Will it be like, will going to university be like going to a, a dance? Or, or is it like a beauty competition where the race is going to be to the petite and the pretty? And I'm, I'm going to have an awful time. And you know, by about two days, I discovered the blinding truth that fellas were like the rest of us. I mean, they were kind of normal. And they just, you could have chats with them. And you'd have beans and toast with them and chips in the cafe. And you'd talk about the subjects you were doing and the match you'd be going to. And I had glorious four years here. I did a, a H-dip as well uh, to be a teacher. I was very happy. And there's a, there's a, a pretty well-known story about how you got into journalism, but like a lot of well-known stories, I'm not sure if it's absolutely true. Is it true that you're, it wasn't really you directly who did it? No, and I'd love to, because I'm always advising people in my uh, role as agony aunt, saying you are entirely in control of your own life. You must make all your own decisions. And that really is one of the things I believe in very strongly. But in my own case, it was not so. I was in the Jewish school and I taught there. The parents who very kindly uh, gave me a ticket to Israel to go for the summer of 1950. It was a return ticket, was it? It was a return ticket. <laughs> it was a return <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but it was a return ticket. And I went to Israel and my mother and father were nervous. I was the eldest of their brood and to go away. And to go in 1963 to... Um, 
uh, to, to, to a, a, the Middle East, which was a fairly turbulent place even then. And nobody that we knew had ever gone there and to work in a kibbutz, which they'd never heard of before that I was going to do, seemed kind of an everything. So I promised them that I'd keep in touch. I'd write to them every day or every two days. And I wrote these long letters to tell them all the, that I was doing. And I was, one day I'd be plucking chickens, other days I'd be injecting day-old chicks, and I started cooking chickens, and I had a long, long relationship with the lifestyle of a chicken, I can tell you that. <laughs> and then, then I would be doing oranges and all the rest of it. It was a lovely, lovely time. And I told them how the, the whole idea of the sort of socialist theory of a kibbutz worked, and that everybody looked after the children together. I thought it was grand, so I was telling them, informing them like this. And when they saw it, because they were very, very um, enthusiastic people to whom all their geese were swans, they thought this was brilliant. They thought Maeve is brilliant out there. First of all, she's alive because she's writing every two days. <laughs> That's good news. And my mother was desperately worried about me. Uh, one of the worries that she need not have ever had. I remember her saying to one of her friends, I'm very worried about Maeve going to that place, you know. Will she get enough to eat? <laughs> there would be no place in the world that I wouldn't have found enough to eat. And I found plenty to eat out there. But I kept them totally happy by sending them all these um, lovely letters. And my father said, I think this is brilliant. We'll get it typed. And it was typed and it was sent to uh, a newspaper. When I came home, I couldn't believe it. There I was. I had three quarters of a page of a newspaper. Irish girl describes communal farm and kibbutz in Israel. And I said, isn't that extraordinary? And I was never greedy. I was never greedy ever about money. But I couldn't get over the money because I got £17 for it and we only got £14 a week for teaching. I got £17 for one article. Imagine, should no wonder people be writers. And then I wrote for four years and never got anything published again. <laughs> <laughs> and so in those four years, the reason I got nothing published, <clears throat> I know now, but I didn't know then, because I was writing in a desperately show-off way. And I thought, well, if this is what I wrote without trying, goodness knows what I could write if I tried. <laughs> but of course, uh, that was not the way I was to have any success. I, my only success has been writing as I talk. And I talk without, as you can see, without much pause for, for breath. And I write very speedily without much pause for, for punctuation or anything. And that's, I think, the way an awful lot of Irish people uh, have found a voice for themselves by writing in that way. And I didn't know that but until three or four years later. And I met Michael Viney from the Irish Times. And I asked him, I said, what do you have to do to get an article published? And he said, what do you care about most today, just today? And I said, well, today I think I understand most of those 15-year-old girls much better than their mothers do. And he said, write that. And I wrote a marvellous piece about how I loved 15-year-old girls. Their mothers hated them because they were all filthy and they stole their mother's makeup and they were sulky. And I loved them because I saw the poetic side of them and the decent side of them at school. And I, I think that teachers knew far more, teachers should be having much more control over them. And it was wonderful, it was a big controversy started. And then I was more or less there, because I realised that that's what you did, you had to write off what you cared about and what you knew. You became, amongst other things, woman's editor of the Irish Times. Were you ideally suited for that situation, clued into fashion, uh, well up on cookery, all that kind of stuff? I'll tell you, I was the most unsuitable person in the world that the Irish Times could have found to be woman's editor. I knew nothing about fashion, and the, my theory about fashion was, if all those little skinny things could get, buy clothes, let them go out and buy their own bloody clothes. <laughs> I wasn't going to be writing about clothes to fit them. And I didn't have any knowledge of cooking because I had never cooked. We lived at home and meals were put on the table for us. I had never cooked. But I thought, well, I'd better get somebody who knows how to cook. So I got Theodora Fitzgibbon, asked her if she would write regularly for our pages. And, uh, and if I could just tell my... Can I tell you my story about Theodora? Uh, the, the, this is the, 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 the deathless instruction, hold the cookery page. <laughs> yes. Uh, Theodora used to, to write her articles immaculately typed. I cannot tell you. Theodora had a terribly posh voice that would cut through steel. And Theodora thought that I knew all about cookery because I was the boss of the woman's page. And I used to say, that's very good, very nice, that piece about marmalade oranges. Pretty good, very nice. Very nice. <laughs> I was just so glad to have the thing in, the right length, tidy. And sometimes Theodora's uh, husband, George Morrison, who was a filmmaker and took lovely pictures, would take a picture. Now, I can't remember in the Irish Times if we ever paid him for any of these pictures, but it was always lovely when he did give, take a picture. So anyway, one day I was dying to get home. Uh, was, uh, my father was at home alone. I wanted to go home and 
to be with him and I was, it was taking forever the day and I thought well I know now maybe because it was a cookie page it won't be too long because Theodore has done all this I hope George had sent a picture George had not sent a picture so I was unreasonably annoyed with George and it was, it was veal recipes and there was all these things um, uh, veal marsala and veal holstein and the veal casserole and all these things so I looked at them, there was never a mistake. What was I looking at? There was never a mistake in Theodore's writing, it was perfect. And I thought, I've got to find a picture to go with it. But I didn't have any picture because I hadn't sent one out in time, it was my fault. So I found to find something that was about that shape. I found something that was that shape in my, in my file of emergency pictures, which I always kept. And what I found in there was a casserole with lots of knives and forks sticking out of it. So I took this desk and I said, underneath it I typed, Tasty veal casserole, excellent for a winter evening. And I went home uh, on the train to Dorky, and I went home, and my father and myself were sitting down, we were having had our tea, and then we were looking at the nine o'clock news, and the second item on the nine o'clock news froze my blood to terror. The second item on the news was uh, Dr. Christian Barnard was coming out of the uh, Grootshore Hospital in, in South Africa, and it said, Dr. Barnard, after his second heart transplant operation. And I said, that's where I saw that picture before. <laughs> <laughs> what I thought, what I thought was where knives and forks were clamps and forcing and they holding the heart an unfortunate happening and I kept saying oh my god oh my god and I said to my father what had happened and because he was a lawyer he said admit nothing <laughs> admit nothing so I said yes I know I have to admit something daddy and we had no car we had no car so I started to run from Dorky into the Street. Now, before I, uh, before I, I started, ra I said I rang Mr. Gageby, who was the editor. I said, Mr. Gageby, and to ring Mr. Gageby at ten past nine at night, you know, you really, the world, third world war should be starting before you do that. And I said, Mr. Gageby, it's me. For yes, yes, what is it? And I said, Mr. Gageby, I'm afraid we're going to have to hold the cookery page. I beg your pardon, he said. I said, it's not a veal casserole, it's, it's a heart operation. It's, it's, it's open heart surgery. And I could hear him ask for the page to be brought to him. And he said, this is bad, he said. This is very bad. The only newspaper in the world to be prosecuted for cannibalism. <laughs> so, so I thought, this is, this is the end. My career is over. Run, run, run. I ran down the hill of Knocknacree Road where we lived. I ran, 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 hoping there was going to be a train. The trains were few and far between those. Maybe I should run to the bus. And there was a man passing, and I stopped the car. And I told him what had happened. And I said, are you going anywhere near Dallier Street? He said, I am now. <laughs> <laughs> came up in the lift with me and everybody on the whole floor, it was now 10 o'clock and everybody was there. And I could probably, the bloody woman was all I could hear, that bloody woman was here. And I said, I'm here, I'm here, Mr. Gage, I'm here. I said, what, what are I going to do? So anyway, uh, the awful thing that you, the thing you dread most, and the lawyers were around the page, and people in suits, and they're all standing around my desk, and they're opening drawers and things, private drawers of mine, and finding little miniatures of gin, and you know, uh, all kinds of things that they shouldn't have been finding at all. Terrible things. And they were in there, and I was, uh, and, and Mr. Gageby now, it was a terrible tick in his forehead, and he said, um, you have five minutes, you have five minutes to find a picture. There's no time to make it bigger or smaller than the rest of it. Get into what you laughingly call your files and find something better than that. And there seem to be a semicircle, there seem to be as many people as there are in this room around me. And I finally found the only picture that was the same size, which was uh, an advertisement, I think, uh, for Wedgwood. You know, Wedgwood would send you the odd free picture for an advertisement. It was a, it was a Wedgwood egg cup, anyway, with an egg in it. And, um, <laughs> I wrote, I typed underneath it, why be content with a boiled egg? <laughs> now, uh, a lot of your journalism was straight out of the school of eavesdropping. 
Um, so not getting out and about as much as a full-time writer, did you have to imagine conversations that you might previously have overheard, or did you just make up those conversations anyway? Why, for books now? You know, well, no, I mean, did you have to imagine the conversation for the books, or did you make up the conversations for the journalism? No, I could hear them for the journalism, and not only did I, uh, could I hear them, but I did another great thing which I would advise anybody uh, to do, not whether, whether you wanted to write or not. I learned lip-reading. <laughs> And lip reading, <laughs> lip reading is the most marvellously satisfying thing. I got a bad, very bad cold once. There was a terrible old flu in London. And everybody got these colds and we all went deaf and we, everything was ridiculous. And there was a lip reading um, course on television. And it was great. And I did it and I went to some lip reading classes in Kensington. And it was, it was fine and I, could, I can lip read pretty well now. And the way you do it is you, turn, you, you record the news on a video and then you turn the news right down. And uh, then you watch the newscaster's face over and over again until you... <laughs> what am I saying now? Saying, you said, what am I saying God. now? Very no. good. That's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, it, 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 it's fine, it's good. So I can see it. And once I was giving a talk to, I, I, well, to a group, she said vaguely, a group. And there was, just in case the people might be here, and they were all lining up after this lunch to have their uh, books signed. I was terribly nervous. I said, I am actually very nervous. I, doesn't, I don't sound I sound as if I'd be talking here forever. I'm very, very nervous of speaking and making a public speech. And I was so afraid I was going to be sick that I didn't eat anything. And I said to the waitress, whom I knew, and she said, you'll have to eat something, mate. God, it's all free. She said that. And I said, I know, I know, I know. But I, I wait till afterwards. Wait till I've made my speech. And then you could bring me a plate of, of cheese and biscuits. And she said, that'll be fine. So anyway, I was fine. There was a big queue coming up, line coming up to meet me. And about halfway down the line, I saw two very elegant women. And one of them was saying, would you look at her eating the cheese and biscuits? <laughs> a plate of cheese and biscuits after that meal. Is it any wonder she's the size? <laughs> <laughs> She was like way across the room, and I had seen it as clearly as if she had said it into my ear. So I fumed a bit about that. I fumed only, I mean, because you know you, you like to hear good of yourself. This was not good. So I said I fumed. And so when she came up, and these two women, and they were saying they were full of plumos, you see, and aren't you lovely? Aren't you lovely? <laughs> lovely to see you. You look so well. And I said, and you mustn't worry a bit about the cheese. <laughs> you mustn't worry. But I had it instead of the dinner as well as uh, not, not as well as it. And their faces were scarred. And I loved it. I was delighted. <laughs> I was delighted. I was so childish, really, when you think of it. Because all I suppose they were doing was, you know, up for my health and my cholesterol. But I, I've always been listening to people, and I, you're constantly overhearing things. I mean, if you listen to things and you take them out of context, most of my books I've got the idea from by listening to people. I was on a bus in London once, and I got the idea for writing Silver Wedding, where I heard two girls talk to another, one another, and one said, I've got to go and get a, a silver wedding card for my parents. And the other one said, that's nice. And the other one said, first one said, oh, no, it's not. The worse the marriage, the bigger the card. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, I wonder, is that true? Is that how Hallmark cards made all their money? That all these people <laughs> just get, give cards out of guilt? And so you get an idea over and over again from listening. But nowadays, um, I still listen. I mean, when I'm... I, I don't walk so well, and, but, but very often, I, if I go to um, a, an art gallery or... Um, uh, an airport or a restaurant. I'm quite happy sitting by myself. You can you can actually hear the most amazing things at tables. And once we were, we were in a restaurant in Cornwall, and I said to Gordon, "I'm very sorry. I'm going to have to ask you to stop talking entirely. Just read the menu at me." And he said, "Why?" And I said, "Because the couple at the next table are splitting up." <laughs> <laughs> I have to hear it. <laughs> and they were talking about custody of the dog, I swear it. <laughs> they'd been there for the whole week. And I actually nearly fell off my chair trying to get into their table to hear them. <laughs> you can hear so much. And you don't ever hear anything really very, very new or exciting. What you do hear, which is very interesting, you hear the cadences that people talk to each other. And when I was writing Tower Road, I wanted to have a mother and a 16-year-old daughter going shopping. And a mother and a 16-year-old daughter should never shop together. I mean, these are species that should not be brought together for a shopping outing. And so I, what I went to do is I sat in various clothes shops uh, and I listened. I just sat there. And you see, you can sit there and listen if you put a sort of a look on your face as if you're not the full shilling, you see. <laughs> 
and nodding about the place like that. And sort of nodding, and people are so happy that you're not saying anything or shouting or anything. They'll leave you there, and you nod and nod and nod. Right, and all that. And uh, I, I, it was wonderful, because when, um, when I wrote that book, lots of people said to me, I was very glad, don't do an awful lot of research. And I was very pleased I did that bit, because lots of people said, that's exactly what it's like to see. What would happen would be that the girl would go to said, I thought this might be nice. And the mother would faint, because she, the mother would say, but that's not a dress, that's a bondage garment. <laughs> and then the, the daughter would say, you don't want me to wear that, that's like something my grandmother would wear. And I just realised that, that if you just listen to them, it's great. So I think anybody from eavesdropping, conversation of judicious eavesdropping, and lip reading. Oh, and the other thing is never to hang up on a crossed line. That's another good thing. <laughs> never to hang up on a crossed line. You have grand things there. That's always very useful. That's very, very useful, the crossed line. Pearls of wisdom for anybody who wants to write a bestseller. Never hang up on a crossed line. A short excerpt there of Maeve Binchy interviewed in public by Miles Dungan at the National Concert Hall in September 2002. On sound was Alex O'Gorman and Kevin Fowley. And the producer was Kevin Reynolds. And if that has whetted your appetite, no pun intended, we're delighted to tell you that the full interview featuring previously on broadcast material, including Maeve reading from her book Quentin's and taking questions from the audience, is available on the Drama on One website. Over the coming weeks, you'll hear three more of Maeve's plays, Tia Maria, Democratic Decision and Golden Oldie My Arse. But if you just can't wait, you can binge on the Binchy Box set by going to the Drama on One website, rte.ie forward slash drama on one or wherever you get your podcasts. And you might like to know that Maeve Binchy and contemporary Irish writers will be celebrated at the Echoes Festival at Ducky Castle from the 1st to the 3rd of October. This literary festival with Maeve at its heart is on in Ducky Castle and Heritage Centre on October the 1st to the 3rd. See echoes.ie for details. Next week's play in the Maeve Binchy season is Tia Maria starring Oscar-winning actress Kathy Bates. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Learn to type. Learn to drive. Have fun. Write postcards. Letters take too long and you won't do it. A postcard takes two minutes. Be punctual. Don't worry about what other people are thinking. They are not thinking about you. Write quickly. Taking longer doesn't usually make it better. Get up early. See the world. Call everybody by their first name from doctors to presidents. Have parties. Don't agonise. Don't regret. Don't fuss. Never brood. Move on. Don't wait for permission to be happy. Don't wait for permission to do anything. Make your own life. My mission this week is to be more Maeve. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.